With sports car racing news from around the globe, this is the Sports Car 365 Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast back in Indianapolis after a trip down to Daytona for the War Before the 24. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGee also fresh off the trip to Daytona, joining me this time from Las Vegas, Nevada. How are you, John? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? Doing well. We've got a lot to cover. It was a busy week down in Daytona for the Roar. Three days of on-track testing for just about everybody, the GTD class being the exception there. Uh, plenty to cover with uh, the WeatherTech Championship. We've got a couple notes from Michelin Pilot Challenge and also, of course, the first race of 2019 for IMSA, the uh, Prototype Challenge Series, getting the year kicked off in style with a race down on the high banks, and we'll uh, discuss that in brief at the tail end of the program or of this uh, opening segment, I should say. We've got news to get to, a lot of it coming from the Roar. Also, an interview with Trent Henman this week, who is testing, of course, for his uh, programs in 2019, both with Meyer Shank Racing in the WeatherTech Championship and also the Park Place program uh, with the familiar Volt colors on their new Porsche Cayman GT4. Club Sports. I will talk to him about both of those topics, and we've got listener questions to get to in addition to a preview of the hand-cooked 24 hours of Dubai. Let's start, though, going back uh, from uh, some of the topics that uh, arose during the course of the Roar, John. We'll start in the DPI class. It was a really strong week for the, the Multimatic Yoast program that um, has has gone through a lot of changes in the offseason. They were very, very fast. The bulk of the sessions, they were the ones at the top. So I guess the first question is, do you think this is a sign that many of those off-season changes are uh, are paying off for this program that's so desperate for that breakthrough win? I, I, first off, for sure, they've made huge strides, you know, year to year. Um, there's been massive changes behind the scenes, um, not only in some revisions with the driver lineups, as we revealed on, on Sports Car 365 last month on the Endurance Cup um, aspect of things, but also behind the scenes. But whether this whether that's the result of them being quickest at the roar, um, I wouldn't say yes or no. You know, we, we really don't know what everybody else was doing. Um, there was talk of, of some other manufacturers maybe sandbagging. Um, I'm actually probably probably sure that that was the case you know somebody was not showing the full strength maybe more than just a few people so you know there, there was no doubt that this this you know revitalized yoast team that's been infused with a lot of multimatic staff um had shown increased pace um very fairly re- fairly reliable as well um you have to remember um they're they're debuting a, an updated engine lots of other updates around the car um i believe one of them was actually running in a bit of a different spec than the other i think the 77 still had to be updated to the what the 55 had done um through the off season months of testing but um they've had a lot of miles around daytona uh, two separate private tests had a setback in one of them with an accident but um i i think you know when it comes to preparation um, there's a lot of new characters, you know, a lot of new people in the in the organization, at least for Daytona. Um, George Howard Chapel, the entire Ford WEC team, you know, there was a, almost the entire crew there was, you know, embedded with this operation. Um, lots of changes in the Yost side as well with Ralph Yutner gone. He's no longer leading the, this factory operation. So, um, you know, we'll see what it what it all comes to, you know, when race day comes. They have some new strategists on board. And I, I wouldn't say they're new by any stretch of the imagination with Lena Gade uh, coming back to Yost after all those years of, of working with Audi and winning Le Mans and, and whatnot. Brad Kettler's come on board for the 24. So, Lots of star power, I'd have to say, and um, you know, it was it was very interesting to see how strong they were over the three days. I'd say allegations of sandbagging, notwithstanding, this is still a big step forward for this program. Uh, in years past, I don't think it, it necessarily would have mattered if others were, were sandbagging. I, I don't know if they had the pace in these cars to 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 top the 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 time charts and and they certainly did consistently i think that's a nice step forward it's a good pr win for the the team as well and to start talking about things like 
breaking track records, albeit unofficially, and you can quibble with whether or not these sessions, especially the qualifying sessions that they have at the Roar, should be official or not as far as track records are concerned. But nevertheless, I think it's indicative of the pace, not just in, in these cars, the, the Multimatic Yost cars, but also the DPI class more generally. Part of that is the switch to Michelin tires, no doubt. Part of it is changes in uh, maybe letting them loose a little bit now that they're not handcuffed to the BOP relative to the LMP2 cars. And in fact, there's an incentive to try and speed them up to separate them from the LMP2 cars. And I think it's fun that we're talking about track records possibly being in jeopardy when we return for the Rolex 24 at the end of the month. This is a record that has stood since 1993. P.J. Jones, All-American Racers, some huge names and a really famous program if you go back a couple decades. And uh, it's neat that that we're finally talking about breaking records once again with the top uh, prototype class in, in IMSA. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all sort of knew it was just going to be a matter of time because um, the the lap record was getting quickly, you know, closed in on it in recent years. I think it was a 134 last year, a pole time. So, you know, the advancements made, like you said, Ryan, speeding the, the, the DPIs up slightly to create a larger gap to the LMP2s, uh, increased development. You know, these, these teams are still working on things over the off season. So uh, all in all, I think that was to be expected, but it definitely adds a lot of excitement. Last couple of notes from DPI. I thought the the new teams to the class were were steady. In the case of Funkos, I think they showed some speed at times. JDC Miller, I think we can expect more from them as they get more familiar with their new Cadillacs. Uh, Again, I put them in the steady category, maybe not uh, jumping out at you with their pace, but certainly right there and in the mix. And I thought Core was going that direction until the final session of the weekend when they ended up on top. Admittedly, not everybody turned laps, and just how many people were were really going for outright pace, I'm not sure. Nevertheless, it's neat to see the Nissan um, in its new hands there with the Core team at the top of the charts, and, and I think that's maybe indicative of just the, the quality of this program. I know you had a story with, with them at the beginning of the of the Roar test, John, where they said, hey, this is basically a glorified test for us. And in the beginning, it looked that way. But by the end, they seem to have their heads wrapped around this, this new platform. And I think they're going to be a team to keep an eye on, especially in the endurance races where their lineup is so strong. And, and you can overcome it easier, I suppose, having uh, an amateur driver in a, in a true professional class. Yeah, you know, I, I would definitely call them a dark horse heading into the, this year's race. And I think we sort of said the same thing for the LMP2 program last year for them, and they ended up on the overall podium. So um, we'll have to wait and see. You know, there's still a long road ahead with this core Nissan DPI. Um, they were actually running the, the same engine that ESM ran in that car at the to, to finish out the season. You know, they're still struggling to get spare parts and engines and everything in, in line because this was a very, very last-minute deal. I think the the decision was made on November 27th. They received the cars only on December 4th or 3rd. So um, it's been a bit of a scramble, but an organized scramble from this championship winning team. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I was very impressed with their their speed as well. You know, not quick, not as quick as some of the others, but it can, all things considered, this is literally their first time with that car. Um, they had not done a shakedown. They had not done anything prior to arriving at Daytona. And to sort of come out of the box, so, you know, within a, a couple seconds of the ultimate pace setters is very, very impressive and very encouraging, too. I would agree. Let's get to LMP2 briefly. Um, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot to say because there were just four cars on site, although for a while it looked like that might even be difficult to do as the Dragon Speed team had some issues with getting their two chassis on site. Eventually, they did. They all, they, they, all four cars did turn laps. In the qualifying session on Sunday, PR1, Matheson had the fastest lap time. Gabriel Aubrey behind the wheel for for that run. Uh, but I think the, the big question mark about LMP2 is, is not so much for the Rolex 24, but for the season as a whole and the future of this class with only two chassis confirmed for the full season. I spoke to both Brent O'Neill from Performance Tech and also Bobby Orgel from PR1. Uh, about their thoughts, and and I'll get to that in a moment. But I know you asked Scott Atherton some questions about IMSA's outlook on this class, and and Scott was 
pretty clear in his belief that there is a need for a Pro-Am prototype component in the WeatherTech Championship, and, and he says he he and IMSA remain committed to finding a way to make this work. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think that there's some hope that we'll see some additional cars maybe on a one-off basis later in the year. Um, speaking to some folks at Orica, they indicated that there's been some interest for for maybe some race-by-race entries later in the year. Some IMSA prototype challenge teams are already looking at stepping up to an LMP2 program next year. Obviously, that's uh, 12 months away, and a lot can change before then. I think we first have to worry about getting ourselves to the end of this season with this platform um you know uh, performance tech is looking to potentially move their car over to the european lama series if things go belly up over here uh, i think it's good for them to have a backup plan like that but if they do sort of decide to cut the cord and go over to europe it basically would end up probably effectively killing the class as it is so lots of important decisions to be made um i think it's clear that you know two cars only for the full season doesn't really work um, we'll have to see if there are anybody that sort of comes around after Sebring. Um, I have indications from Dragon Speed that they'll likely enter one of their Oracas for the 12-hour. Um, their other Orica will be busy doing the 1,000-mile WEC race. So we should have three cars for Sebring. And then I think the biggest question is, well, who shows up for Mid-Ohio, which would be the next LMP2 round? Um, if we can get another car or two, I think we can be in good shape to uh, finish out the season and sort of try to rebuild um, this platform for, for 2020. And clearly something needs to be done to make the, the budget more palatable and, and make this more of a realistic opportunity for drivers, especially drivers coming from the, the Prototype Challenge series, because I talked to both Brent and Bobby about this, the, the budget gap between the the LMP3 series and, and trying to jump up to LMP2, it's huge. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, I talked to them about what could be done to try and help alleviate that problem. Both said that the decision to eliminate the the street races from this year's calendar were huge, and maybe that's the only reason we have these two cars on the grid is because of, of that decision on IMSA's part, uh, which came after a great deal of input from both uh, O'Neill and Orgel on, on the topic. Uh, and, and I thought an interesting suggestion from Bobby Orgel saying the next step would be to make Daytona a non-points-paying event for the LMP2 class. He said, look at what the relationship is between the ELMS and the 24 Hours of Le Mans, where Le Mans is still out there. There is that connection, but it doesn't count towards the championship. And it's something that if you have drivers that aspire to do it, then great. But you don't have to budget in a 24-hour race to do the full season and have a chance at a championship. And, and he told me that could knock off another half a million or more dollars from a season budget, just eliminating the Rolex 24. I, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts about the feasibility of that? Brent O'Neill told me he wasn't so sure that was going to be enough, but that is a big chunk when you're talking about a LMP2 budget just a little bit north of, of $2 million, they were telling me, for a full season. That's a quarter of that budget or more, and, and I, I think that could make a difference. You could even take it one step further and eliminate all the endurance races for these LMP2 cars and have it turn into a sprint cup, much like what is GTD is offered as, a, as an additional um, championship with the WeatherTech Sprint Cup. That's something that Orica has sort of been quietly proposing to IMSA as well. You know, eliminate all the, you know, Daytona, Sebring, uh, Watkins Glen, Petite, make those invitational races like Bobby's suggestion is for for Daytona, so allow those cars still to compete if they want to, and maybe even in within DPI um, classification. I, I don't know how exactly you would do it, and maybe it would depend how many entries there end up being. But just have LMP twos for the sprint races, and I think we'd be looking at a, a million dollar budget, and all of a sudden that makes it really. Um, uh, advantageous for a lot of teams and, and pro-am drivers wanting to be in the big show for with a prototype, you know, platform. Yeah, interesting. So certainly it'll be a story throughout the course of the year, but some some interesting suggestions from Bobby Orgel in particular, and fingers crossed IMSA can find a way to revitalize LMP2 the way that uh, that they've done with GT Daytona, as we'll talk about in just a moment. GT Le Mans Corvette was quickest in the qualifying session. All the manufacturers, though, seemed pretty close to me. I think it was less than seven-tenths of a second between uh, first and last in the class in that qualifying session at the Roar. 
And I guess there's not a whole lot that jumps out to me about this class, uh, but but perhaps the closeness is one is the story, and and especially coming on the heels of BMW's shaky debut last year, it's nice to see all the manufacturers really within a shout, and I think they can go into the 24 feeling like they've got a shot at the win. Yeah, and, and with somebody like Alex and already in the lineup, um, right. a living legend in, in motorsports, that's an amazing story. And much like what we see with Alonzo and Kobayashi, I, I think having Alex uh, in a, a potential winning car is going to be a huge storyline as we get into the, the, the race week. Um, like you said, everybody's close at the roar. We'll see really what that translates to in race week. I'm expecting some BOP adjustments. You know, in the meantime, IMS has gone through a new balance of performance process for this year that's much more transparent, that's much more uh, ma- mathematical based. And, and also, it's a specific BOP only for Daytona. Um, it's been sort of done in the past, but not to this level. So uh, some manufacturers were complaining that, you know, it didn't seem fair because, you know, they should have taken the results from the previous year. But Daytona being such a unique track, um, IMSA really relied on the data from last year's race, which ran very much caution free. And I I think that was a really good barometer, especially with the cars being more or less the same. Um, That was BMW's debut. And obviously, obviously they've made a lot of gains since then. But um, yeah, overall, I was pretty pleased with where we, we saw at, at the Roar with, with GCLM. How about GT Daytona? Meyer Shank Racing had the fastest time in their separate qualifying session, which occurred on Saturday. That was one of the stories there, uh, one of the cost-saving measures that IMSA implemented, simply cutting off the final day of the test for the GTD competitors. Uh, I thought it was neat to see the, the new Evo kits on the Acuras, the Lamborghini and the Audi as well, plus the new GT3 Porsche in, in action. Um, I think that's that's one of the cool storylines, but for me, it's the revitalization of this class that is pretty remarkable. I know we had a good entry last year for this race, but I remember talking in our preview about how we weren't sure what the full season subscription was going to look like, and year to year, there does seem like there's, there's some more wind in the sails of GT Daytona, and I think IMSA deserves some credit for the changes that they've implemented. Absolutely. 23 cars here at the Roar, um, 23 for the race, and only a few less for the season, as it looks like right now. And we should have additional cars for the the Sprint Cup rounds. So amazing, you know, transformation, uh, you know, year to year. And a lot of it is done with IMSA's crackdown on the driver ratings, some cost reduction measures with less testing. Um, yeah, there always there's still going to be some controversial driver pairings. I, I think looking at the full season lineups, but I think for the most part, a lot of it has gotten taken care of, and we're seeing some new drivers into the series too, some new bronze drivers. And I think that's what GT Daytona is all about: is about bringing in gentlemen drivers to the sport and and really letting them race. And we hadn't really seen any new drivers come into GTD, gentlemen drivers, that is. In, in a bunch of years and now to sort of see, you know, uh, um, you know, some new ones coming that is shows that this, the system is, is likely working. Yeah, definitely encouraging signs there. Just wanted to mention briefly a couple storylines from uh, the Michelin Pilot Challenge paddock, the, the new Porsche Cayman GT4 Club Sport, which was unveiled over the weekend at Daytona looked really, really strong in, in its testing debut with the, with the customers at Daytona. The top six times, I believe, from the combined test sessions were set by drivers in that car. So expect some changes there. But in general, GS continues to look strong. I think the TCR class is something to be very excited about. We didn't even have Hyundai there for the war, but they will be there for the uh, for the the race, of course, that to kick off the season at Daytona, much more diversity, much more depth in the TCR field for 19, which is good to see. And I mentioned it earlier, the first IMSA race of the year uh, in the 50th anniversary season for the C- for the series, the championship, uh, or I guess the sanctioning body would probably be more accurate. And some motorsports with the win with Neil Alberico and Leo Lamellis. Pretty cool to see. They actually had to start at the back of the field. They missed qualifying due to an engine change, I believe it was, and uh, ended up storming through the field to, to get the win. Pretty good car count, I think, 19 cars in that race, too. So exciting stuff uh, to, to kick off the 2019 season. A lot of news as well that came out of the roar before the 24. We'll get to that in our next segment here on the Double Stint Podcast. 
Hi, I'm Jerome Liekemolen and you're listening to Sportscar 365 Double Stint Podcast. Welcome back to Double Stint. Let's dive into the news that came from the weekend at the Roar, John. It will start with your story about continued interest from manufacturers not currently involved in IMSA's DPI program or platform that are interested in getting to become a part of the action in the not-so-distant future. First of all, who do we know is interested? Who might still be out there? And uh, when might we see some of these programs come online if they are given the green light? Well, as we've reported in the, in the past few months, there's been a lot of interest, you know, from manufacturers, and I think there's varying levels. And uh, I think that what we've sort of seen is when, as the ACO hypercar regs have sort of become defined, that's helped manufacturers sort of make a decision of which route they want to go. You know, it, it's pretty clear that we're not going to see the hypercar in IMSA at least right now. And I think for some manufacturers, it's picking or choosing or, you know, not doing anything at all. Um, Latest rumbling on the streets is that Ford and Hyundai are the two leading contenders to join DPI in 2020. Um, Talks have continued meetings, um, uh, design studies for both of those manufacturers. Ford was a bit questionable at first. Um, There's been a lot of changes company-wide from that manufacturer and um, I've heard conflicting stories over what really would happen after the Ford GT program presumably ends at the end of this year. But um, had a few other sources confirm that it looks like a DPI program is still on track. Um, still a lot of, you know, things to figure out and, you know, see if it's a, 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 def- a definite possibility for a Ford DPI. A Hyundai DPI is in a similar situation right now i would say they're probably a little further behind ford on the the talks and planning but um it's definitely on their radar screen and i spoke to albert bierman the the head of hyundai and performance back in late november about it and he admitted that you know dpi is definitely one of the options um we'll have to sort of wait and see whether it's for 2020 or maybe a little later that sort of brings in the, the other point you know here with the next set of regulations for dpi whether the current regs will be extended in a further year or we'll see the existing regs end at the end of 2021 as announced Um, we have a story up on sports car 365 about that and some reaction from some manufacturers on what they'd like to see it's almost looking like it could potentially be an evolution for 2022 maybe with like a hybrid system bolted on some other uh, updates to the existing platform rather than a completely clean sheet design but um, there's additional meetings um, during race week at the rolex 24 to sort of get the ball rolling and define what's on the horizon for imsa's next generation DPI. But um, going back to the manufacturers for the short term, there also appears to be a third manufacturer potentially in the pipeline. Um, we hear it's a small vol- small to mid-volume uh, Japanese manufacturer, which is quite intriguing because it's not the likes of Toyota, Lexus, or or any anything like that. It, it's you know, somewhere along the lines of, of, a, of a Subaru or a Mitsubishi, um, we're a bit unclear who that actually is right now. Um, those two names I mentioned are really, is truly just speculation on my part. I'm still trying to figure out what it, who it is and if this is a definite possibility of seeing this manufacturer in 2020. But um, I think it's uh, great news to see this amount of, amount of interest. There's some others also keeping a close eye and maybe for 2022 or or beyond during the new regs, whatever those may be. It's nice to hear that there are other manufacturers interested on interested in jumping into the the DPI waters. The question I have is, of the ones that are currently involved, are there any that are question marks to continue their involvement down the road? I I think the the Nissan one is always going to be subject to having a customer – um, because it is truly not not a, a Nissan factory effort. It's more of a Nissan customer program. But uh, of the existing Ford OEMs in DPI, John, how, how do you rate their continued interest in DPI, not just through this set of regs, but also looking ahead to what's to come in the future? 
Yeah, um, Cadillac has a three-year commitment to it, and this is the third year of that. So it's a bit interesting on, on that side of whether they will continue next year. Presumably they will because they just sold new cars you know, to JDC and, and Yonkos. So I'm not worried about Cadillac, but maybe their level of commitment could always change. It could increase, it could decrease. Um, when it comes to new regulations, that's always a different question. So in terms of 2020, I think we're safe with Cadillac. Um, Acura we're, we're safe with as well from what I understand there's still question marks over whether there'll be customer Acuras because it's our understanding Penske had a two-year exclusivity on that package um, speaking to the Steve Erickson about that the, the HPD um, uh, chief operating officer he indicated that that, that customers' cars for 2020 are probably going to be unlikely, that this program really wasn't designed for customer cars. It was designed for flagship factory teams. Um, that's not to say they might not add another car, another team to the roster. It is similar to what Acura has done in the past with LMP2. Um, you got to remember the days of Andretti Green and Highcroft and and, uh, and J- uh, Jill DeFerrin's operation and, and all those operations and Fernandez racing that sort of worked together to create that ended up being one big team that blew the flag for Acura. So still a bit undecided there, but I think short-term Acura is definitely on board. Um, the multimatic based program, you know, who knows what can happen. You know, there's, they've been under fire a lot lately, um, obviously for performance and reliability ending last year with a double podium is a very positive step there for for that organization the team yost squad so um we'll have to see what happens long term i i'd say if they're they finally get that elusive victory i think that would really go a long way in securing the long-term future for that dpi operation and then um nissan like you said ryan i think it really is a kind of a year-to-year situation right now um i don't think core would have really purchased the cars had they been thinking it's just for one year but then again, you never know what they may be offered the year after. If there's new factory programs coming in, you know they may be they may have been looking at this as an investment to secure a new manufacturer deal for 2020. That'll be their own bespoke program. You know that's been their long held goal um, with this is to have two factory operations, one in GTLM with Porsche, which they just resigned, and having a DPI program with another manufacturer. So. Um, interesting times in DPI, um, you know, looking at the numbers, there's a potential for seven, you know, next year. I, I don't think we'll get that high of a number, but if we could have five to six, I think that would be an incredible achievement for, for what IMSA has been able to do, um, with this, this platform in just a few short years. Yeah, much more on that topic, I'm sure, in the weeks and months to come at sportscar365.com. Another story to come out of the roar is the potential for the GT Daytona cars to be slowed down in the upcoming uh, potential balance of performance change between the Roar and the Rolex 24 itself, uh, in part, I think, due to their times creeping up there pretty close to, to what we see from GT Le Mans, in part because of uh, development with these cars and in part because of the switch to the Michelin tires. What do you know about the possibilities there, John, and also um, uh, how this is being received by the, the various competitors across the different classes? Yeah, I spoke to Jeff Carter, the the tech chief for IMSA, and he was a bit hesitant to say that it's a it's a possibility. You know, I know that IMSA never likes the fact of saying, "Hey, we want to slow somebody down or slow slow a whole class down," but they have their hands in a, in a bit of a, a dilemma here because the GTLM performance window is at the absolute maximum. Um, it's actually at a higher level than what is seen in WEC right now. And the GT, GT Daytona cars are at the lower end of the spectrum from the GT3 performance window. What we've seen with GTD year to year, like you said, Ryan, we've seen some advancements, the Evos, the new car from Porsche, the Michelin tires. It's resulted in a, a, about a two-second per lap improvement year to year at the Roar. And that's a massive change. Um, that's a massive step forward. So uh, it does leave a bit of a, a challenging situation, especially with GTLM drivers trying to overtake GTD cars, especially going into the corners. Um, uh, personally, I think IMSA is going to have to do something, and, and, and that might result in a slight reduction in, in, in top-end speeds maybe for, for GTD just to get them a little more you know, separated, especially when it comes to trying to overtake through traffic. 
do you understand that this is going to be a season-long change, or is this targeted specifically at Daytona? I think it'll be just Daytona. Um, speaking to Jeff, you know, he said that uh, this kind of separation is usually seen the most at Daytona, and there is a Daytona-only BOP now. So I, I think they'll at least start it off at Daytona and then see where it goes. But I have a feeling that GTLM cars are going to still have a, a fairly big gap everywhere else we go. Um, Daytona is such a unique track where it often presents a lot of challenges in terms of the, the class separation. But, um, yeah, in, interesting times for sure with the, the IMSA technical committee. Um, they've always done a really good job with the BOP. And I, I know this is going to be a difficult one because I know a lot of GTD teams don't want this to happen. Um, they feel that their cars are already detuned enough. I think the Mercedes um, is like one of the heaviest cars out there in the world right now at 1,390 kilos, and you can't keep adding more weight to these cars. Um, so really the only option is to do a slight power decrease, and that could have some big con- consequences. Okay. Uh, final story for the week. We got word that uh, the Michelin Encore, which was run for the first time going back to the tail end of last season, a chance for teams to, to sample Michelin tires, I think, was primarily the way that it was laid out uh, at Sebring with Michelin coming on board for classes beyond GTLM and series beyond the WeatherTech Championship uh, coming into 2019. Uh, I think the intention always was for this event to return, and, and we got word that that is going to be the case. The Encore will be run again at Sebring in uh, 2019. Yeah, good news for, for all involved. I, I think this time around, the Encore is definitely going to bring in more interest from teams. Um, there's some events that are no longer clashing with it. Um, this year, Last year's race clashed with the HSR round at Daytona, and okay, maybe that didn't detract from the number of entries, but um, it detracted from some drivers and some, some fans uh, attending. Also, the Intercontinental GT Challenge round the California eight hours has been moved to, to March of this year, so that's not going to have any issue with you know, having teams pick or choose, you know, what uh, what race they want to take part in. The interesting thing is that the, the press release from IMSA announcing the second annual Encore was not exactly clear on whether the race will remain four hours or not. I know the folks at IMSA were sort of polling teams and drivers and, and even the media during the weekend um, asking, you know, should it be a longer race or maybe a little shorter race or maybe a different format to try to attract attract teams and um, you know, I guess the, the bigger thing there is stay tuned. You know, maybe it might turn into a six-hour race or or, or, or something else. Um, the other interesting thing is GT3s will again be eligible for this event. Um, we have to remember that they there weren't any of those cars at last year's inaugural round, but that was a bit of a complicated situation as we had a, a numerous Evos and new cars to deal with, and IMSA wasn't in a position to uh, to allow those without any kind of balance of performance information. Yep, definitely. So uh, made it made it for a challenging start, but uh, we've seen events like this grow in year two, and hopefully that will be the case here with the Encore. So plenty more on those stories and the rest of our coverage, of course, from the Roar Before the 24 at sportscar365.com. Up next, we'll talk to Trent Hinman, busy guy this season once again with double duty between the WeatherTech Championship and Michelin Pilot Challenge. Might have some other plans in the works as well. We'll talk to him about that and more next. Hi, this is Jordan Taylor, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Trent Hinman joining us now on the Double Stint Podcast. He drives for Meyer Shank Racing in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, also Park Place Motorsports in the familiar Volt Colors in the beautiful new Porsche Cayman GT4 Club Sport in the Michelin Pilot Challenge Series. And I know that made for a busy week for you down in Daytona for the Roar Before the 24. It's nothing new for you. You've been bouncing between paddocks for the last couple of years. Uh, Does it get easier as the years go by trying to juggle those different roles? Well, first off, I'm going to agree with you 100%. Both those cars, including the uh, new Porsche Cayman GT4, are beautiful and I uh, definitely appreciate you having me on here, Ryan. But um, does the job get a bit easier? Yes, it does. Um, you get more conditioned to uh, to the schedule. You get more conditioned to going back and forth. And I think the most important thing here, and the biggest positive that I'm uh, I'm seeing right now after after you know really 
day one through three with uh, with new programs is the fact that it's I'm I'm fortunate I'm lucky to be back with teams that I know uh, a large majority of the folks that I'm working with. So uh, slotting right back into the Meyer Shank Racing Program that that goes 100% unchanged from the personnel that we had last year, and that's just a massive help uh, in having to balance two programs. Um, the new side, new Volt Racing side of Park Place Racing uh, in in the Michelin Pilot Challenge. That's going to take me a little while to get used yeah, to. Yeah, you and me both. Uh, <laughs> I think there's quite a few folks around the paddock, but it'll uh, it'll definitely settle in after some time. Uh, that's that's a new side of Park Place Motorsports, but either way, it's uh, it's an unbelievably talented group of people. Very fortunate to be there, and um, both teams are very well organized, so it makes my job pretty straightforward just being able to to plug in and go. You've been around the WeatherTech Championship paddock in and around it for the last couple of seasons, did the endurance races for MSR last year, but now the chance to be full-time in the WeatherTech Championship. How how big of a step is this for you and your career? I don't know if I could really describe it at at this point. It's been six years of of trying to break through that barrier of, of running um, the Michelin Pilot Challenge, running Lamborghini Super Trofeo, and various other series other uh, are under the uh, the IMSA umbrella uh, to try to get over to WeatherTech full time. I think that's a goal for for 99.9% of the drivers who are running in in those support series. So to to be one of the guys who was <clears throat> able to make it through and uh, and be fortunate enough to, to be in a position to run in GTD full-time uh, and not just with anybody with, with Mike Shank, with the Meyer Shank racing team. I mean, that that's, that's something that even for me where I'm sitting right now, it's, it's still hard to believe. So going to make the most of it. It's a, it's a program that should absolutely be in contention for, for not just winning the Rolex 24 or, or 12 hours of Sebring, but should be in contention for winning this championship. So, um, grateful to be there. There's uh, definitely a bit of pressure on on my shoulders and, and Mario Farnbacher's as well. But we're we're ready for it. We've been in these positions before, and, and we're ready to fight for a championship. And the program got off to a good start. It would appear at the Roar, uh, your your teammate had the fastest time in class in qualifying in the sister car. Anna Beatriz uh, did that uh, over the weekend, and uh, it seems like the new Evo kit is a big step forward. I know we talked about it a little bit down in Daytona, but for those who are listening and are curious, what are the biggest differences year to year with uh, the NSX now uh, sporting that Evo that MSR was so important in helping to develop? Well, I mean, for 2019, it's not just Acura. It, it's a large majority of, of GT3 manufacturers are coming out with Evo kits or, or new cars outright. I mean, the, the new Porsche GT3R, that's a, that's a brand new car from the ground up. So uh, for us with the, the Acura NSX GT3, we already had a very, very strong platform uh, last year. I know a ton of development work was put into it uh, between the Meyershank Racing Team uh, Acura, Honda HPD uh, over the course of 2017 and 2018. Uh, but now to, to drive this Evo kit, which really the, the car remains mostly unchanged. It's mainly uh, some differences in aero, aero work, uh, aero balance. Uh, the body work is, is the biggest change there. So uh, the car at the core is exactly the same. And, and that makes it extremely user-friendly for, for us drivers, because we know what we're hopping into. We don't have to learn an entire new set of controls. We don't have to learn, you know, new balance characteristics or anything like that or anything too drastic. Uh, same thing with the team. They know the platform that they're working on. Mechanically, again, the car is, is I mean, mostly unchanged. Uh, it's just bodywork. So, I mean, I think that in itself has made a big enough change in in the way it drives and uh and, and its overall competitiveness that um it, it's going to be a pretty pretty positive platform mo- moving forward into the into the year and again as we saw in 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 qualifying for the roar um our sister car the 57 uh Bia put in a huge lap that was awesome and we know the car has a ton of potential. So just just commenting on that, too, it's really, really nice to have two cars that have uh, great driver lineups 
will show their competitiveness throughout the year. Uh, just it, it gives the whole team more data, more resources to, to pull from and, and make both cars go quicker. The other big change year on year, and this extends actually to Michelin Pilot Challenge as well, is the uh, addition of, of Michelin to both championships, uh, something that, that's new to you, at least racing in, in these series. So what are the big differences that you notice from a tire perspective, both on the Acura and also on the, the GT4 Porsche? I think there's a lot more. Uh, the tire that we're using in the Michelin Pilot Challenge and the tire that's being used uh, right now in in uh, the WeatherTech Championship in the GTD category, they're they're very very similar. In years past, uh, the tire that we had between GS and GTD was quite a bit different in terms of their feel and the way you have to drive with them. So it's nice to have that consistency across both platforms. Uh, the tire itself, I mean, it's a Michelin. Michelin's got uh, an unbelievable amount of, of resources and, and uh, knowledge that they can sink into this and, and really create a, a tire that's going to not just appeal to the drivers and the teams, but also appeal to the fans. It's going to create some really great racing. Um, it's a very predictable tire over the course of the stint. That's one thing that I noticed. So, uh, should be making for some good battles during the 24, uh, at least in terms of pitch strategy and, and who's on what. But, uh, yeah, ov- overall, it's it's been phenomenal so far, at least for the first time for me uh, running on this tire. I know quite quite a few people had had, had uh, a bit of experience on it at the end of 2018. Uh, I think uh, the roar was the first time a majority of us got our hands on it. So far, all, all I'm getting is uh, positive feedback, and all I've got is positive feedback for it as well. It's uh, it's really a phenomenal package. Focusing for a moment on your Pilot Challenge program for 2019, there are a lot of familiar faces for you with your, your same co-driver, Alan Brynjolfsson, returns, Mike Johnson, who was involved with the program last year, still a part of the program for 2019, but also the the fresh faces and the new team behind the team with, with Park Place coming on board. How did all of that mesh and gel in your first real extended time running together at, uh, at the Roar? So, yes, we've got a fair amount of new personnel, even though the core group of me, Alan, and Mike Johnson remain the same. Uh, we've got two brand new race cars. Uh, one, one is, is going to be our backup. The other is going to be the primary for the year. But we had both out on track for all three days of the Roar. Um, I mean, it's, it's so many new items for everybody involved but uh when you have a guy like mike johnson uh in a leadership position at a team with uh with the resources like park place motorsports um things are gonna run i think pretty strong from the get-go and that's that that's exactly what we saw both cars directly from uh porsche motorsport north america literally I, i mean i kid you not ryan we turned the key we sent them out on track and I think we ran all three days, almost every single lap with both cars without really any major issue at all. There was a couple of nagging things here and there. Uh, I think our biggest problem uh, across the course of the three days was getting our radios to work correctly, <laughs> which eventually we did. But when, right, when you've got that as your main focus going into the race, hey, we, we have to get our radios figured out. Uh, I think that goes to show that we've got um, – not just a, a strong car, a fast car, and, and a competent team, but we've also just got a package that's unbelievably user-friendly and reliable. And I keep using that term, user-friendly, even for uh, the Cayman GT4 and NSX GT3 Evo platforms. Um, I think it, it, for all GT3 and GT4 cars across the board in 2019, uh, that's really the name of the game. It's ease of use for the drivers, ease of use for the teams, um, that's what I'm most impressed about uh, in, in this new generation of race car that we're, we're seeing right now. Last thing for you, not to, to indicate that, that, that you're not going to be plenty busy with these two programs we've talked about, but you've kind of made a reputation over the last few years of driving just about anything you can get your hands on. <laughs> so I am yes. curious, might we see you anywhere else, whether it's a Super Trofeo or, or something else? Do you have any other programs in the works or mm-hmm. are you going to focus on these two? 
No, no. I, I need to focus on these two. These these are two really huge opportunities for me. Uh, not that running Super Trofeo or anything else would, wouldn't be a huge opportunity. But, um, again, it's it's been six years uh, of scrapping in uh, in the support series trying to get to the, the main show here, Ryan. And, and to finally be in that position, I, I, I have to make sure that I'm all in for this. And I, I certainly am. So uh, if I were to throw in a third uh, championship on some of these weekends. Uh, I know I did it once in VIR in 2017. That was sort of a freak occurrence. I'd love to do it again, but I just don't think it's really fair to any of the teams involved, especially especially when it's not sort of a one-off event like that, where it's going to be consistent across multiple events, having to run around even more than, than what I am now. It's a, it's a phenomenal problem to have. I'm unbelievably grateful for it, but it's not really conducive to, to giving each team, each program, 110% of what they need uh, in order to go out and, and try to compete for wins. So we're going to keep it at this for now. We're going to try to fight for, for not only a uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge GS championship, but also a, uh, a WeatherTech GTD championship as well. And I'm just lucky to be in uh, two positions with two teams that can certainly get that done here. Now, sounds like a plan. Certainly all of it well-deserved. Great to see you in the big show and also still involved in, in the Pilot Challenge series as well. Looking forward to seeing you back on track in a couple weeks down in Daytona for the Rolex 24. I'm looking forward to, uh, to it as well, man. 28 total hours of racing across the weekend. I mean, who can complain about that? So thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to a strong 2019. Hi, I'm Cooper McNeil, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, John back with me now to answer some listener questions before we preview what's to come this weekend. We'll start with a question that came in on Twitter from Kyle Brown using the hashtag AskDoubleStint. He wants to know, why does IMSA care if teams are underweight at a test? Seems like the BOP would be set less favorably than otherwise since the car is faster than it should have been. I think this is in reference to the LA Honda World team in Michelin Pilot Challenge, which was sent home early for being underweight at uh, the Roar tests this past week. Well, I think it's a case of IMSA just wanting as accurate as possible data to use from the test in order to shape any potential BOP changes in between the test and the race. And by having a car not in compliance with those current BOP rules, causes you know all that data to be thrown out and luckily in the case of the honda there was two other teams that were in fully full compliance so they do have the data from those cars but they still don't have the data they expected from four cars for instance so i think that's why imsa came down hard on them um, there was also some other factors that played into it but i think we should make it clear that it didn't seem to be anything malicious or even necessarily deliberate on the, that team's part it all sort of circulated around the availability of ballast on that weekend and um, can't really say much more at this point, but I, I don't think th- those those guys were really trying to trick IMSA in any particular way. Yeah, I'd agree with that assessment. Ricky Zagata with our next question. He says, attendance for the Roar seemed to be way up this year. Did Daytona or IMSA release attendance figures for the weekend. Uh, I had similar conversations with a couple of folks who seemed to agree that it did seem, especially on Saturday, that uh, that the attendance was quite good and maybe better than in years past. I think we had better weather than we've had in the last couple of years, which might have helped. As far as attendance figures, other than the number of Boy and Girl Scouts in attendance, which was something like 6,000, I didn't see anything. Did you? No, unfortunately, um, International Speedway Corporation does not release attendance figures for any of its events. So we never get to see what the numbers are for Daytona or and um, Sebring in the past. We had them with with when Don Panos had run the the facility. But ever since it's been under an uh, uh, IMSA slash ISC property, um, we don't have it for that or Motul Petit Lama either. So it's unfortunate because I definitely agree. I think there were a lot more fans there. And even speaking to some teams and drivers, they sort of felt like this was like a real proper event now. You know, it's like qualifying and, and uh, the support race and everything. So um, IMSA has done really well to sort of build this event up year after year and um, turning it into a, a real proper uh 
outing for, for all involved. Yeah, it was kind of hard to, to move around in the garage area with so many people on Saturday, which was, was neat to see. Uh, certainly great to have so many folks out there taking it all in. And again, pretty good weather Saturday probably helped as well. Final question comes from Goncalo Sans2084, who says, Hello and good year to both of you. Love the sighting. Keep it up for 2019. Thanks very much. He wants to know, where does Timo Bernard's con- uh, connection with Mazda come from? Olivier Pla is from Ford, which is run by Multimatic. Maybe Timo's drive is purely due to his pace and a need from Mazda. Well, I think the connection comes from Yoast. Um, having driven for them before the, the advent of the Porsche 919 hybrid program, Timo had won Le Mans with, with Yoast um, in an Audi R15, actually. I think it was 2009 or 2010. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of history there with him and the, the Yoast organization, and I think that was really where that connection came from. The last thing came from the comment section of last week's show. We were talking some on, on the previous show about one of the Hunkos drivers, Augustine Canapino, and Esteban Garcia Press gave us some information that I was uh, thought, thought might be worth sharing with you folks. He says you were talking about Augustine on the show last week. He has lots of racing commitments in Argentina because he will maintain Turismo Carretera Stock car racing, where he's a three-time champion, and it is the main series in the country. Also, Super TC 2000 touring car racing, Orica engines for this year, and Top Race V6, which is apparently a prototype series based on road cars like the Toyota Camry. And Esteban also says uh, something that I've heard as well, that Chevrolet Argentina, probably helpful, that GM connection to, to have him in the seat for Ricardo Juncos at Daytona. Talking to Ricardo, he does not know yet who the full-season driver alongside Will Owen is going to be for the year, but uh, I think this is when this came up last week. We were speculating that Augustine probably was not going to be a factor for that, and that appears to be the case. So thanks for the information, Esteban, and thank you for listening. Finally, John, let's preview the Hankook 24 Hours of Dubai, which is this weekend a big endurance race to, to get things going here in 2019. It's a race that has grown in stature and prestige over the years and another pretty star-studded lineup in, in some of these cars uh, headed over to Dubai to, to get the racing season well and truly underway. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people consider this as the first major race of the year. Um, you know, the, the entry list always nears 100 cars, uh, a huge diversity, you know, from from GT3 and GT4s to, to TCR and, and, and more production based. And it always stirs up some controversy, sometimes post-race with, with accidents and, and whatnot, but um, always a, a good event to kick the year off. And I've I had the pleasure of, of covering that race numerous years unfortunately missed it last year gonna miss it again this year but we have jay kilshaw um coming going down there for us uh, to to provide all the coverage so uh keep it tuned to sports card 365 for for all the updates from dubai yeah a lot of uh, good coverage coming your way i'm sure from our buddy jake so that's it for us on the show this week we'd love a rating and a review on itunes if you have some time despair it sure would help and then also we'd love to get your questions for next week's show you can use the hashtag ask double stint on twitter or leave a comment in the comment section from this week's show we'll talk to you next week we'll talk about the 24 hours of dubai on the program and a whole lot more on next week's edition of the double stint podcast 